the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, beginning at verse 7. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. Moving to verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your promise of a new covenant as spelt out by the prophet Jeremiah. Help us by your spirit to comprehend the scope and depth of that covenant and to understand how it applies to us, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Our thanks to Chris for reading from Jeremiah 31. I'm going to be referring not only to the section which was read, but to some other parts of the chapter, so you may find it helpful to have the passage open. It's page 791 in the Bibles, in the chairs. My mother used to encourage her children with this little jingle. Tis a lesson you should heed. 
Try, try again. If at first you don't succeed, then try, try again. The origin of the saying, as you may know, was the example of Robert Bruce in the 14th century, who struggled to hold on to the Scottish crown. After successive defeats at the hands of the perfidious English, he was on the point of giving up, having fled to the island of Rackrin off the Irish coast. There he took refuge in a hut to consider his future. He witnessed a spider trying to establish a web on the roof of the hut. It tried six times and failed, just as Bruce had failed six times in his fight to expel the English from Scottish soil. Bruce decided that if the spider tried again and failed, then he would give up the fight. But if it succeeded, then he would try again to rally his countrymen to drive them out. The spider succeeded, and so did Robert Bruce at the Battle of Bannockburn, thus establishing Scottish independence for 300 years. As I prepared this talk, it came to me that try, try again accurately describes God's dealing with his Old Testament people. But we should note one very significant difference from the story of Robert Bruce. His failures were at least in part due to his failings as a Scottish leader and military commander. But the failures of God's covenant in the Old Testament were entirely down to the disobedience and apostasy of the people. God did not fail them in any way. I don't think the failings of the people should surprise us. Human beings can be very awkward. In my experience of working with people in the university, I can attest that the best laid plans can be undermined by people not only being uncooperative, but actively seeking to derail those plans. So too, the Old Testament people of God. But God does not give up. So the theme of this sermon should be God trying and trying again with a recalcitrant people. That tells us a great deal about God's commitment to and love for them. A few words about the context. In the sermon on 2 Kings 17, at the beginning of February, we saw that God's Old Testament people were sent into exile because of their apostasy. They had worshipped the gods of the land in which the Lord had established them, despite many warnings that they should remain faithful to Yahweh alone. They had compounded their wrongdoing by making idols of those gods in clear contravention of the second commandment. And they had rebelled against God's laws and become corrupt. In the words of the writer of Kings, the Lord removed them from his presence in the land. Exile is the theme of Jeremiah in the chapters preceding chapter 31 from which we have read. In particular, Jeremiah warns the people of Judah, that they're going into exile in Babylon for 70 years. The text of chapters 25 to 29 is a sobering read. It's not surprising that Jeremiah attracted a lot of flack from the authorities in Jerusalem for his unwelcome message, which was judged to be undermining of morale, if not utterly traitorous. But from chapter 30 
the tone changes remarkably. The next four chapters are sometimes called the Book of Consolation. Their message is that the exile will end and the people will return. And it begins with these verses at the beginning of chapter 30. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring back my people Israel and Judah from captivity and restore them to the land I gave to their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. The rest of chapter 30 spells out some aspects of this return. They will be rescued from their suffering, verse 7. The judgment that has fallen on them will be complete. Verse 17, I will restore you to health and heal your wounds. No longer will foreigners enslave them, verse 8. But they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, verse 9. Most importantly, the community will be reestablished with its buildings and economic life restored. Jerusalem will be restored from the ruins, verse 18. And the concluding punchline in verse 22. So you will be my people and I will be your God, declares the Lord. Now that sets us up well for chapter 31, which is the focus of our attention this morning. And the chapter moves from the narrative of the return from exile to explore the relationship between God and his people in the restored nation. Now, there is an immediate puzzle about the return from exile. It was clearly intended to be a new beginning in the relationship between God and his people. But a hardened observer might question why the Lord thought it would work this time around, given the history of failures of national reformation in both Israel and Judah. What would make it different this time? Now, one ingredient that was different was the chasing experience of the people in Israel. In verse 15, the prophet recalls the traumatic emptying of the land as the people are taken away. And you may recall the lament of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? The chastening provoked an understanding of their need to repent of past failures and led to a plea for restoration to fellowship with God. Look at verses 18 and 19. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You disciplined me like an unruly calf, and I have been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. There was also a desire to renew their worship in Jerusalem. Verse 6, come let us go up to Zion for the Lord our God, suggesting a change of attitudes compared to their earlier apostasy. So that was the first ingredient, the chastening experience of the people in exile. And the second ingredient was this. It was the character and faithfulness of God. 
The people recalled God's faithfulness in the past. Verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Now he will bring them back to Judah from the places where they have been scattered. The expectation is that a great throng will return. He will accompany them and guide them as a shepherd watches over his sheep. Not only will God accompany their journey back, he will also watch over the renewal of the land and the rebuilding of the towns and cities. This is a recurring theme in this chapter, which is summarized in verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words, the Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. The emphasis is on a restored community, the vision of a peaceful and prosperous people. No wonder that in the next verse, verse 26, the prophet records, At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. Nice to think that even Jeremiah sometimes had good dreams. So we have the repentance of the people, on the one hand, encountering the unchanging kindness and faithfulness of God. But the question remains, was that going to be enough for a successful relaunch of Israel and Judah as God's chosen people, a holy nation, a light to the nations? After all, there have been instances before of national repentance under good kings of Judah like Josiah. The problem was that the people were unchanged, even if chastened. And something more radical was needed if the resettlement was to be successful. And that more radical ingredient was Jeremiah's announcement of the new covenant in verse 31. The time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Let's just recall the contours of the covenant. The covenant of Sinai, as expounded in the book of Deuteronomy, reflected the form of a treaty that was widely used in the ancient Near East to regulate the relationship between the ruler of a great power and the people of a subject nation. The ruler claimed sovereignty and service, and in return he offered protection and support. The subject people pledged loyalty, payment of tribute, and exclusive reliance on the ruler. So the declaration in verse 33, I will be their God and they will be my people, is a restatement of what had in principle governed the relationship between God and his people before. So what's new about it? First, the Lord declares in verse 32, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The contrast with the Mosaic Covenant is sometimes described as the difference between obeying an external law code, which had been written down, and a law that has been internalized so that obedience follows almost without having to think about it. People just do it. 
That doesn't entirely do justice to the Mosaic law. After all, in Deuteronomy 6, the first covenant is introduced with these words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you are to be upon your hearts. God's Old Testament people are always required to internalize the commandments. Indeed, their failure was that they had substituted external compliance, when it suited them, for obedience of the heart in their relationship with God. Second, the effective terms of the new covenant will permeate the whole community. Verse 34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know him, from the least of them to the greatest. Among God's people, there will not be any who are ignorant of him and his will for human lives. That in itself ensures that the people in general are more likely to be obedient within the covenant framework. The example of others is very powerful in sustaining the social and cultural life of a community for good. It also, you will note, rules out a situation where a few leaders take it upon themselves to promulgate and enforce what they see to be what God requires of the members of the community. You may recall Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees of his day for their zeal in enforcing the law, enhanced by their own interpretations. And then third, the new covenant picks up on the problem of individual sin. There is a slightly odd saying in verse 29 about the father's sour grapes and the children's teeth being set on edge. And it probably means that the current generation were inclined to blame the sins of previous generations for the calamity of exile. And Jeremiah counters this robustly. Everyone will die for his own sin. But the new covenant provides an answer to this problem. Verse 34, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This was definitely a new development. You see, the Mosaic covenant had not provided a remedy for deliberate sins. And in their apostasy, the people had done wrong deliberately and repeatedly, which is why they went into exile. But here, the offer of forgiveness is completely without restrictions on its scope. So what does all this mean for us? What can we learn from Jeremiah's description of the new covenant? I have four C's for you. Covenant, commitment of the heart, community, and the cross. So let's begin with covenant. Covenant reminds us that God did not and does not give up on his project of redeeming redeeming humankind, of dealing with human sin, of enabling humanity to flourish, and of providing a hope and a future. He does indeed try and try again with us, the human race. Individually, 
we can all of us go through times of exile when we are estranged from him, when we feel unworthy of him and feel we have forfeited his love. We may then be tempted to give up on him, but he will never give up on us. That is implicit in his covenant with us. Second, commitment of the heart. We are called to be participants in this new covenant. As the New Testament makes clear, notably in the writings of St. Paul, we're no longer under the law of the old covenant with its rules and regulations. The new covenant must be for us a commitment of the heart, not a fulfillment of an external moral code. Though that commitment of the heart should result in lives that in fact fulfill God's law for human lives. So we have covenant, we have commitment, and then thirdly, we have community. In that commitment, we are not alone. We share it in community with other Christians who constitute the new people of God. Each of us must have a personal relationship with God. Indeed, we should know God in a way which is not head knowledge, but daily experience. But we are not only individual Christians. We belong together. In Christ, we are adopted into God's family. We are brothers and sisters to one another. So we need to encourage one another in following Christ and to provide our community with exemplars of Christian living. So we have covenant, commitment, community, and finally, the cross. As our communion service reminds us, our problem of personal guilt and responsibility for our sin has been dealt with by Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. That was the bit of the puzzle that Jeremiah didn't know. We follow Jesus and therefore long to fulfill the commandments of God in our daily lives. When we fail, God is faithful and urges us to experience his covenant love and forgiveness again, time and time again. Let's pray. Hear again the words from verse 3 of our passage. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. And he promises in verse 33, I will be their God and they will be my people in the context of a new covenant. We are called to a commitment of the heart. As God's new covenant people, let us offer to him, in the words of our communion service, our souls and bodies, to be a living sacrifice. Amen.